You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. Pardon me, back up. Um, One housekeeping item to get out of the way here. I'm a little bit dressed down. Does anybody know why? A particular team may have beat another team from the state of Iowa. So as is our tradition here, I wear the shirt of the winning team. And up to this point into the life of this church, I've only worn a Hawkeye shirt. And that makes my heart happy. (laughs) Well, as Rob said, we are in Ephesians. We're making our way through the book of Ephesians united in Christ, and what we're seeing as we're united in Christ, we're united to one another because of Christ. That theme is resounding from chapter 1 all the way to the last verse of Ephesians. Earlier this week, I was thinking about our study through Ephesians, and I've mentioned multiple times that Ephesians is separated very neatly. What do I mean by neatly? As I've said, chapters 1 to 3 are, are heavy theology. <laughs> it challenges the intellect. It challenges our, our mind. I mean, I preached eight sermons between verses 3 to 14 in Ephesians 1 because of its theological depth. Chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians is about application. What do we do with all this information all this theology, this rich theology, how do, we, how do we live it out? How do we walk it out? As I was, I was pondering this division, it occurred to me, chapters 4 to 6 might be more challenging for you and me to hear. There's a big difference between being challenged to, you know, to be challenged intellectually with theology as opposed to being told, this is how you now need to live. Because what happens there, it's a call for you to change. It's a call for me to change. And in my experience, just being a human being and being a Christian, Ephesians 4 to 6 can really challenge challenge us because it's so hard to change. And we need help from God. I mean, we're going to be talking about marriage next week. After that, parenting. God has something to say about that. And with those, with that, those messages and talking about those topics, there is a call to, yeah, this is, this is how God wants you to do it. This is how you are doing it. So you need to conform into the image of Christ more and more so that you can live in a manner that honors God. So I, I think today's text and going forward, um, it's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge our hearts. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So I'm going to pray briefly because I need God's help, and then we'll dig into our text. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. We need your word to go forth. It is authoritative for our life, and we come as humble and needy beggars. So indeed, by the power of the Spirit, instruct our hearts and our minds so that we would be transformed more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
most homes have spoken or an unspoken code of conduct. As a matter of fact, I initially entitled this sermon, The Christian Code of Conduct. Then I changed it to Be Filled with the Spirit. I think either one works. But most homes have a code of conduct. Some of it's spoken, some of it's unspoken. If you come to the Powers house, my kids will tell you what is and is not allowed. Uh, For example, you can't jump on the furniture. You must pick up after yourself. Uh, You need to brush your teeth and floss before you go to bed. Some of this is spoken. As they grow older, some of this is unspoken. (laughs) Even society has written and unwritten codes of conduct. We have laws that are written down. And in subcultures, there might be like unwritten rules. Not laws, but rules that are just kind of understood by the community. You know, growing up, there was this one house. No one one told us, but we just knew we don't go to this one house. There was an understanding. We don't go there. There's a particular reason why we speculated, but we didn't know. It was kind of this unwritten rule. If you follow baseball, I like baseball. It is notorious and full of unwritten rules. The unwritten rules of baseball. If you follow baseball, you know what I'm talking about. When it comes to the Christian life... My concern is with what has been written down. I'm not concerned as much with what what has not been written down, the unwritten rules. I believe God has said enough through His Word to let us know what it looks like to live the Christian life. Whenever you add to what God has spoken, you begin to dabble into legalism. But God has spoken much. In faith, if you live out the principles and commands God has made clear, I I believe with my whole heart, you will honor God. For example, I will not tell you which translation of the Bible to read. Although, I can give my recommendation, you know? Like, I got my recommendation, but I'm not going to tell you, like, stay away from the King James. Don't do that NASB stuff. I'm not going to say that. Everyone knows we read the ESV. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what movies you can and cannot watch, but I can show you principles in Scripture to help you think biblically about what you should or should not watch or what you should listen to or not listen to. I'm not going to tell parents how to educate their kids, but I can help parents think through the options with the Bible in our hand. i got opinions on education, right? But my goal is to prayerfully help you with Bible in hand about how to educate your kids. I'm here to show you what is clear. And when the situation or the question is gray, I'm here to guide you to God to find clarity from His Word. There's much grace to be offered in the gray space. This morning, from Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21, We read about a Christian code of conduct, as I already said. Each verse, seven of them, provides for us one principle to directly apply. Now, these principles are not random. They are not disconnected from one another. Six of these principles are held together by one. That's verse 18, being filled in the Spirit. So, if you are in Christ, Ephesians 1, if by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, and if the mystery of the gospel has been made known to you, Ephesians 3, then here is what it looks like to walk in Christ. As you walk in Christ, you walk with your Savior and Lord, and you walk with one another as a community, as a church. 
The same Greek word for walk, peripateo, shows up again in verse 15. I think I keep mentioning this over and over. We are to walk. That word just keeps arriving in our text. In the last sermon last week, I've been using the walking metaphor to help explain the Christian life. I was thinking to myself this week, what is it about walking that effectively describes the Christian life? Why does Paul keep reverting back to that idea? Here's what I surmise. Generally speaking, walking is natural. It's natural. You walk every day. You, walk, you uncon- unconsciously walk. Some people's strides are longer than others. Some people walk faster than others. You got the mall walkers out there, right? And then we tell our kids to, to not run, walk. We got the shuffle thing going on. They're walking. We just do it. We know what it means to walk. God created us to walk. And throughout the Christian life, walking includes, this is what Paul is getting at in chapters 4 to 6, transformation, ongoing transformation. This is what it looks like to live out, to walk out the Christian life. So I'm about to lay out seven steps of faithful Christian living. But here's what I know to be true. None of us is perfect. I'm looking out at a bunch of people who are not perfect. I can look in the mirror and say the same thing for myself. We strive. We strive. Yes, we keep walking knowing sin and the devil do not want us to live out our faith in a way that honors God. So here's the good news of the gospel. At conversion, God saved you from the power of sin and is now with you. Seeing you transformed day by day. You know, every day we may take two steps forward, one step back. There are days where it's like, I'm taking 10 steps forward. It was a great day. I was walking with the Lord. I did my devos. I prayed. Helped the needy and the poor. And there are some days where it's like, I didn't even know. Did I just walk 10 steps back? Like we have those days too, right? There's grace through it all for God's children. There's grace through it all for God's children. So I assume no one in this room has mastered these seven principles. And I also assume that if you are a Christian and you read these principles, you want to be faithful to God by trying to apply these principles. It's like, yes, how do I do it? Let's go. And yes, the light keeps, is on a dimmer thing, so I apologize for the light. I'm not sure what's going on. There we go. Let's just keep it there. All right, let's get into the text. Here are seven principles for faithful Christian living. We'll go through it one verse at a time. Here's verse 15 of Ephesians 5. Look carefully, Christians. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We see a contrast. We're going to see several contrasts in our text. So right away, we see that there is a way to live unwise and wise. The question we need to contend with is, what is the source of wisdom? Right? Everyone thinks that they are wise in their own eyes, Isaiah 5, verse 21. But we often look to politicians and athletes or celebrity pastors and friends for wisdom. Are they the source of wisdom that Paul is talking about here? When making a decision, when you make a big decision, do you tend to look in the wrong places about how to make that decision? What's your source of wisdom? What does the Bible say about wisdom? James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
So there's wisdom above that is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, James says. What's he getting at there? Wisdom comes from God. Wisdom comes from God. Christian wisdom is practical wisdom for it teaches us how to behave. A great book of the Bible to read to gain practical wisdom and understanding is Proverbs. Naturally, go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8 is all about wisdom and then every chapter in Proverbs speaks to issues of wisdom. Like, I make it a point to read through Proverbs pretty regularly. As a matter of fact, leading up to the 2020 elections and seemed everything was crazy, I read Proverbs several times knowing that it gives wisdom about how to see the world and what's going on. Proverbs gives biblical perspective and it helps us to discern what is unwise. I'll talk about the foolish in a moment, but a fool is often called unwise, especially in the book of Proverbs. When is wisdom revealed in a person? Well, your wisdom is revealed when you make decisions. Wisdom is the convergence of discerning what is right with doing what is right. Wisdom leads a person to a specific action. In our passage, we see how wisdom is connected to, this is interesting, time management. Look at verse 16. You need to be wise making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Now, whoever thought that the Bible had something to say about time management, right? But here we see that a wise person acknowledges the days we live in. It's evil. Therefore, we need to use our time well. And this principle of time management is our second principle. The Greek underneath, making the best use of our time, is actually the word redeem. Same Greek word for redeem and and redemption. If something needs to be redeemed, there is some type of deficit that needs to be overcome because, as we read, the days are evil. Christians need to use their time wisely. Wise Christians redeem the time instead of wasting the time. Uh, the late pastor and theologian John Stott says this about using our time well. Wise people know that time is a precious commodity. Think of time like that. It's a commodity. All of us have the same amount of time at our disposal. With 60 minutes in every hour and 24-hour days, none of us, Stott says, can stretch time, but wise people use it to the fullest possible advantage. They know, Stott continues, that time is passing and also that the days are evil. So they seize each fleeting opportunity while it is there. For once it has passed, even the wisest people cannot recover it. Wise time management, I think, is a principle we can apply directly and quickly to our own lives, right? I don't know a person who doesn't have an outlet for wasting time. (laughs) I don't know a person who doesn't have that outlet. Listen, I'm not talking about um, disengaging in an activity you enjoy. Yesterday, I spent time watching, like I said, the Iowa Hawkeyes play the Iowa State Cyclones. I love watching college football, right? Uh, I was glued to the TV during that moment with some great friends. But if I'm turning on the TV like at 8 a.m. to watch college game day on ESPN and I'm I'm hooked until 11 p.m. when probably the last, you know, uh, game is played and over with, then I think I'm not using my time wisely, right? 
even if I didn't have a sermon to finish and the day is completely free, don't you think there are other things I could do with my time to edify, say, my wife or my kids? May I also suggest that if something consumes your time more than Jesus, you're likely not stewarding your time well. Your time is not being redeemed when you are constantly scrolling through social media outlets, right? Here, here's the challenge for everyone in this room. Identify something you know that consumes your time and appropriately adjust. Course correct. Engage your brain with godly wisdom and put wisdom into action. Agree with the 18th century theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And he says this, he says, resolved. He got a bunch of resolutions. And he says, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way possible. So we need to remember, wisdom is the convergence of what is right with doing what is right. And in particular, as we see in God's word, how do we use our time? So that was the second principle. Third principle. Understand the will of the Lord. Let's read verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, we read, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, so what is the will of the Lord, right? You know, I can tell you what the will of the Lord is not. That's easy. The will of the Lord is not your will. That's stating the obvious. But far too often, especially when making decisions, we, we seek to understand Ourselves before God? <laughs> fools follow their own intuition. Fool f- fools follow their, their gut, you know? Got a gut reaction. But the wise seek God in his will. So as I've thought about the will of God, how do, we, how do we begin to understand the will of God? Two broad categories come into view. God has a general will and a particular will. God's general will is the same for all of his people. God's general will is to see you all become more like Jesus. That's safe to say. His general will is to see you, Christian, become more and more like Christ. God's particular will has to do with the specifics of your life, right? A relationship, attempting to discern a big decision, like should I move or should I get this job or what do I do with my life? And how can you know the general will of God? First, the Bible is the chief location to understand God's general will. You go to his word. It's in God's word where we read about God's design for family and marriage. It's in the Bible where we read about God's plan of salvation and redemption for broken and sinful people. It's from the Bible where we receive principles for flourishing in this evil day. So what is God's general will for your life? Well, go look in God's book. So if you ask that question yourself, what is God's will? Be driven to his word. Now, what about God's particular will for your life, right? We're all different. We're all different. Here's the answer. And it's not as cut and dry, but there are spiritual tools at your disposal to pursue God's particular will for your life. First, prayer is essential when it comes to seeking God's particular will. So before moving to Iowa, the powers spent a lot of time in prayer. Again, there's no chapter and verse that says we were to move to Iowa. We do see general principles for church planning and gospel advancement, say in the book of Acts. Those of you who moved to Iowa with us walked through a similar process. We, we saw it and we're like, wow, it's God's general will. How do we become a part of that? Am I supposed to be a part of that? So you're here for the church. You're following God's will. God's general will is revealed in Scripture and prayer revealed the particulars to move to the Des Moines metro. 
Making a decision to move to Iowa was the convergence of seeking God's general will and his particular will for your life. Understanding the will of God also means having a transformed mind. We read this in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Only Christians with a transformed mind can know the will of God. I grant that anyone can read a book, the Bible, you know, and try to get a sense of God's will, but the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit and a transformed mind are the key to unlocking the door to understanding God's will. There's a confluence of God the Spirit and and God's Word that enables you to understand the will of God. So speaking of the Holy Spirit, we read in verse 18 the fourth principle. Here we go. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's how I want you to think about verse 18. It's like the hinge to a door that opens up both ways. It opens up to the previous three principles, and it opens the other way to the following three principles. The contrast between being drunk on wine and the Spirit has to do with sobriety, the state of your mind. First Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded. Holy Scripture does not make a prohibition of alcohol, but it, it is clear about the importance of pursuing the Spirit. How can a person be wise and discern God's will if it's not the Holy Spirit guiding and governing the decision that, that you make? Think of it this way. A person drunk on wine is under the influence. You're all familiar with that language, right? Under the influence. The person filled with the Holy Spirit is also under the influence. But that's where the similarities end. A person under the influence of wine does not make good decisions. I know from from personal unwise decisions that I've made in my distant past. A person under the influence of wine does not use time well. Go back to principle two. A person under the influence of wine will not make wise choices that honor God. However, the person under the influence of the Holy Spirit experienced the opposite condition. There is clarity, there is sobriety, and there is self-control. So, the contrast is not as much between wine and the Spirit, but between the two states that are expressed by the verbs that exist in this particular verse. Being drunk with wine leads to dispassion, but being filled with the Spirit leads to joy and fellowship and obedience that comes from the Lord's will. Um, The Greek word, as Ryan pointed out, be filled, is stated as a command. A command, an imperative. It's an imperative that you need to take seriously. The practice of being filled with the Spirit is just like filling a cup up with water. Turn on the water and fill it up all the way to the top. And like water, you need the Spirit because He is life-giving. One of my favorite um, pastors and theologians is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He he was a, a physician and a pastor. He said this really, he made this really smart statement, and I'm going to share it with you. He says, If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook on pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he, he stimulates every faculty, the mind and the intellect, the heart and the will. You see how being filled with the Spirit is vital for every Christian. It's the Spirit that helps you to walk wisely. It's the Spirit that allows you to understand the will of God. And it's the Spirit that, as we're going to see now in our next principle, it causes you to sing. Take a look at verse 19. We're just marching through the text. feels like a John Piper sermon, 20 points. Usually don't do it that way, but just kind of led that way for this week. Verse 19, we need to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Sing. Uh, Singing is powerful. You know, I don't have a great voice. I'm on record to say I can't clap on a beat and sing at the same time. I'm very deficient in that way. Yet, there is something about music that stirs my emotions. While I was writing this particular part of the sermon, I was listening to bluegrass music, and I just kind of looked at my foot, and it was just tapping. Like my, you've seen me during worship. I'm swaying back and forth. You're just wondering, what's going on with that guy? Um, music moves me, and it moves many of you, and it's supposed to. There's something about music that can move emotions, and we should not be surprised by the power of music. We have an entire book in the Bible that are songs, the book of Psalms, right? Dedicated to singing. I think it's incredible God has created music for humanity. And how, do, how are we to leverage the music that comes into our ears and into our soul? First, we're to sing to one another. That may seem odd until you consider the content of what we are singing to one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are to be sung. I've already said we have an entire book that are songs. We have a tremendous repertoire of music to pull from. When When we read in Psalms, there are words that come off our lips that are accompanied by instruments. The root word for him is praise. I don't know if you knew that. We are to praise God. And Paul throws in spiritual songs to help us see that what we sing is from a heart full of, what? The Holy Spirit. Taken all together, we sing truth to one another. When we sing to one another, we are reminding one another of the truths that we hold collectively. Um, This morning, where's my phone at here? I usually don't pull out my phone. We sing these words to one another. Come praise and glorify our God, who gives his grace. Listen to these truths. Who gives his grace in Christ. In him our sins are washed away. What a precious truth that is for us to sing to one another. We are forgiven. We are redeemed through sacrifice. We sing that to one another. In him, remember Ephesians, all about being in him, in Christ. In him, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. It's like this song was written with Ephesians on the mind. What beautiful truths we've gotten to sing to one another. What a wonderful set of truths we declare as a community. You know, many psalms indicate God's people singing to one another. Ryan was trying to make that point. It's really odd in our Christian culture, Midwest, like 
do I turn around and sing to the person? Like, that just feels uncomfortable. But I was, I was thinking about what's a, what's a psalm that, that has this singing right here, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise and let with, with him with songs of praise. Let us, let us sing to one another as we sing truth to God. I also want to point out, and I've made this point before, that we don't sing every song you hear on Christian radio. We don't sing every popular song. The criteria of what we sing is what is true. What is true. There are a lot of popular songs being sung by Christians that are weak theologically and biblically. Not trying to be mean or crude or whatever. I mean, some good songs, got a good beat. But our, our chief criteria of what we sing is, is this biblical? Is this sound? Is this true? That's the chief criteria of how we begin to understand, how Ryan and Rob begin to understand of what do we sing on Sunday morning. As you can tell, verse 19 also says we're singing to God. But note where you are singing from. You're singing from the heart. From the heart flows words of worship to our great God. So we sing to one another. We sing to our great God who is worthy of our praise. When we worship in song and Sunday morning, these two activities are happening. Now the sixth principle, thankfulness. Verse 20. We read this, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, there is much to be thankful for. Much to be thankful for. Most importantly, we are grateful for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, I can stop right there and say, if the rest of your life is a struggle, yet Christ has saved you, you have every reason to be thankful Every reason. Nothing is more precious and vital than being saved by the grace of God. There is much to be thankful for. The opposite of thankfulness or gratitude is grumbling. You might have noticed from reading the Old Testament that one of the perpetual sins of Israel was they were always grumbling. The pattern would look something like this. They would whine. God would provide. Then they go on whining and grumbling after God provided. And then God would be faithful and provide. They would whine. And God would provide again. <laughs> and they would grumble. It's like, come on, guys. Haven't you seen that God is faithful? For some reason, they just didn't have that heart of gratitude. Over and over, Israel would grumble even though God was faithful to them. When you are filled with the Spirit... You fight the temptation to grumble and you look for reasons to be grateful. I pray with my children almost every single night and often, my kids know this, I pray that we would have grateful hearts. One of the chief things I I pray for. I pray that they and, and we see what God has blessed us with instead of looking around and seeing what we do not have. 
I pray this way because we're often tempted to grumble because of what we do not have or because a specific situation did not go our way. Evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life is this heart full of thankfulness, full of gratitude because of how God has provided for you. First and foremost, because of Christ, but also the blessings he loves to pour down on his children. The final principle for walking out the Christian life is submitting. Submitting is not a popular, I don't know if you noticed, submitting is not a popular word (laughs) to use. Um, But I'm going to give it my best shot to redeem it because it's biblical. And then next week, when we talk about marriage next week, I'm going to fill it out more. Like, what does it mean to submit in this marriage dynamic? But we read this, until then, we read this in verse 21. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another in the church takes on a different emphasis than submitting in the home, wife to a husband. Again, we'll talk about that next week. Submitting to one another in the church takes on characteristics born out of the life of the Holy Spirit. Here's what submitting looks like in the church. Serving one another. Speaking truth to one another. Offering encouragement to one another. Walking alongside one another, especially when someone's going through a very hard time. Submitting to one another is not demeaning or degrading, but it's supposed to be life-giving. I mean, we see here that this is but what it means to be filled in the Spirit. Submitting isn't a, like a dirty word as is characterized by our culture. But it's beautiful and it's good. Like I said, it's life-giving. Submitting to one another creates a community, a community centered on love for each other and love for God. We read in verse 21 that submitting to one another is because we have this reverential fear for Christ. Reverential fear is a holy and good fear for Christ. When we have a reverential fear for Christ, you, you are put in awe because of who Christ is. So don't think, you know, my fear of snakes. <laughs> this is very different. This is a reverential fear of God because of what he has done in Christ. Like, who is Christ? Here he is. He is the Son of God. He is the King. He is the Rock. He is the Creator of the universe. He is the Redeemer. He is the Almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Great High Priest. He is Emmanuel. He is the Author and Finisher of your faith. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Word of Life. He is Light. He is the Fountain of Living Waters. He is the Great I Am. He is the Son of Man. He is the Christ. And the list could go on and on and on. That is whom we stand in fear of. When I am in awe of Christ, I'm willing to be brought low for my brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Biblical submission is beautiful. And it takes the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit for us to practice it rightly. So yeah, it is good to submit to one another out of a holy and reverential fear for Jesus. And you can live out, verse 21, because the Spirit is alive and at work in your life, Christian. Where are all these principles leading us? Right? 
Where are they leading us? Indeed, there is a sense that unbelievers can have a measure of wisdom due to God's common grace. Unbelievers can use time well. Unbelievers can sing, right? What makes our call to live out these principles different, right? I wonder if you noticed in our text, did you notice the triune God in our passage? In just a few verses, we see the triune God. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to sing to the Lord. We are to give thanks to the Father in the name of Christ. The fingerprints of God are all over this passage, and it is because of what God has done for us in Christ that we aim to live in a manner that honors God. So, we walk in a manner that honors God, not because we have to, but because we want to. And we do so for the glory of God. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.